Welcome to Pedagogue, a podcast about teachers talking writing. I'm your host, Shane Wood. In this episode, I talk with Jenny Crisco about culturally sustainable pedagogies, practices that help foster student success, universal design for learning, and directed self-placement. Jenny Crisco has been with the Department of English at Fresno State since 2005. She co-coordinates the first-year writing program, teaches undergraduate and graduate courses in writing, literacy studies, and composition theory and pedagogy, and conducts workshops with Central Valley High School teachers on teaching expository writing. Her scholarship bridges areas of literacy and rhetoric, explores the connection between language, diversity, and activism, and extends conversations about the effects of critical pedagogy on literacy and learning. Her current work builds on these links to implement universal design for learning, a pedagogical approach that promotes flexibility, accessibility, and high expectations for a broad range of learners in secondary and college writing classrooms. Ginny, thanks so much for joining us. Do you mind talking about teaching at California State University, Fresno, a public Hispanic-serving institution with about 25,000 students. Sure, so um, Fresno State is part of the California State University system, and it's one of 23 campuses. It's one of the larger campuses in the system. Um, And so often we're looked at from other campuses as a kind of a model or, um, you know, for some of the stuff that we're doing, Uh, you know, so we have a lot, we have a very diverse student population. In fact, um, white students are the minority at Fresno State. And so, um, and Hispanics, well, Latinx students are the, are the majority. Um, Most of them are local. We do get some from other areas, such as the Bay Area or Southern California. Um, and and so um, it is very rewarding to work at Fresno State. In fact, the students that I work with um, is one of the most rewarding pieces of working at Fresno State because often those students, um, and this is a huge generalization because there is a lot of diversity as far as our Latinx student population, but. Um, you know, the most rewarding experiences are those students who have really come from very poor backgrounds, who um, don't speak English as their first language, um, whose parents, you know, work and work and work, are not educated themselves, and they come to college because they see hope for the future. You know, seeing that diversity and supporting students, um, and, you know, I, those that's that is one of the great things about working here. Um, and then also, you know, part of what has happened with me is that, um, you know, I, uh, I work with teachers a lot now. And so helping teachers to think about the ways that they can cultivate culturally sustaining pedagogies in their classrooms. You know, they're the kinds of, te- some of our teachers, you know, really wish that they would have had culturally sustaining pedagogies when they were going through. Um, and that's really a term from education. Um, it's not really in our discipline as much, but it's this idea, like if you've ever read the stuff by Malin Gonzalez about um, accessing our students' funds of knowledge and then we're, um, and building on that and using that as a resource in our, in our classrooms. Um, and our field has been talking about that for a long time. I'm not sure that we always um, do that, um, but we, we want to do that and that's a good thing. What does it look like to embrace culturally sustainable pedagogies or what practices help foster student success among diverse populations 
in your local context? What people have been talking about a long time, for a long time to cultivate, um, you know, culturally sustaining pedagogies is, you know, a diverse reading list. And partly it is, you know, pulling together readings from um, scholars of color or writers of color um, and women, you know, sort of diversifying the reading list. Um, and, and to me, that's a very basic one. I think one of the ways, particularly in our first year writing program, but also in the work that I do with teachers, is that I've been really trying to think about um, the idea of how we integrate code meshing and how we make that something part of our pedagogy and um, how to support new teachers in making that happen. Particularly, I think it's, it's more challenging in secondary institutions because you know, there's state standards that they have to follow, there's administration that doesn't quite understand all those different things. And so um, helping um, teachers to realize, and, and also I think that our field is really new at, um, at uh, those pedagogies and what that looks like. Um, even though there's a, there is conversation about that and there's really good conversation about that, um, I think I think we're still thinking through um, how best to teach code meshing, and so um, using model texts is one way of doing that, right? And so you know, there's different kinds of code meshing, right? There is the code meshing that is that's more of a Black English approach, right, where you're integrating Black English, but then there's also what's really more common at the Hispanically Hispanic serving institution is the the Spanglish or in our case Monglish because we do have a Hmong student population as well you know trying to find readings that model that kind of um, code meshing um, for different audiences because that's part of the issue right is like you know Gloria Anzaldúa how to tame a wild tongue is is an example of code meshing um, but it's written for a white academic audience, and you can kind of tell just by analyzing it, right? And so um, trying to find those readings that will model the ways that professional writers are doing that, um, trying to help students understand the idea of audience, because audience is a very abstract term, right? And so if you start thinking about audience, who's your audience? Oh, it's everybody. You know, that's kind of the default with students. But once you start saying like, okay, well, what if your audience was, you know, um, your friends, you know, are you going to speak this formal language? Um, and then also trying to, in, in that kind of language teaching, trying to, first of all, well, you know, talk about power dynamics of language. Second of all, um, talking about, the choices that we have right so even just saying something like what's you know the difference between a formal tone and an informal tone right to sort of help students see that there are choices as far as that goes and when they shape their sentences and their language that it can and do those kinds of things um, but then also um, helping teachers to think about the way that they respond and and this is something that asau in a way brought of course to our writing program is you know he did research with some graduate students of, um, several years back when he was here, and um, part of what they found was that um, you know the the students who were second language speak or other uh, you know that spoke English as another language that um, they got more comments about their language, um, and so we might say like oh well that makes sense because maybe you know they're still learning how to speak English um, in a formal way. But his point was to say, you know, maybe we need to look into that. Like maybe we're targeting those students too much, um, that maybe we are not making a space for diversity in our language practices. And so 
that's one of the things that I've continued to do even after he's left is say, you know, let's look at the ways that we are encouraging our students, supporting them, um, helping them to use the variety of language practices that they have uh, in their lives, right? Because part of first year writing, yeah, is, is getting students ready for, you know, the rest of the university, but it's also cultivating public intellectuals. You're also working in collaboration with other California State University colleagues and secondary teachers to develop curriculum that focuses on universal design for learning. Can you talk more about this work? I'm working with several other colleagues across California State Universities and um, secondary teachers on this program called ERWC, Expository Reading and Writing Curriculum. It's a federal um, grant. It's uh, $12 million. For a long time, um, since the, the I would say mid-90s, um, the CSUs have said that they wanted to reduce the remediation to less than 10% by, I think it was by 2002 or something like that. And that never happened because um, of how we measure what is remedial. And there's a, there's a long history in that, and I can go into that, but I don't, I don't think it's necessarily relevant right now. But, um, and so, but what that, what that prompted or what it promoted is that the CSU started putting money into programs to go into high schools to better align the kind of uh, work that high school students were doing with the kinds of requirements um, at the college level and more specifically um, how they were being being um, trained or or taught how to write and so um, this this group that I'm working with you know we've gotten together with high school teachers and literacy coaches and county offices of education um, and what we've done is we've created curriculum um, that 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 teaches students how to um, read expository texts and then respond um, and make arguments. And so uh, it's re-energized my career and my profession. And so, um, so a lot of the stuff that I do with them, I also bring into the first year writing classroom. And then I also um, do that work with secondary teachers who are, um, you know, who are, uh, you know, I teach like a literacy studies class for pre-service English teachers at the upper division level and those kinds of things. And so, so some of the things that I brought from the ERWC um, that I think that I've always been committed to, but um, you know, an inquiry assets-based collaborative approach to students, right? So believing in their abilities to complete um, their work and to move forward and to you know do things, working together collaboratively in order to build a kind of opportunity for shared um, learning and helping each other and 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 inquiry based, right? So really um, trying to encourage students to find the things that they're interested in um, and follow up on those things and show them how writing works in the world, um, that we are not just jumping through hoops, that we're not just assigning writing, but that we're actually helping them to cultivate their voice and providing opportunities for them to um, use that voice. And, and partly that's through also, uh, you know, teaching about uh, genre awareness. Um, and then the other thing, um, particularly that I've been, um, you know, my, that the grant has allowed me to do is do more research on universal design for learning. 
Um, and that's a more recent um, interest of mine, um, particularly because I have a daughter with a disability. My um, dad and sister have disabilities, and so I've kind of grown up with disability my whole life. And so um, I had learned about UDL with my daughter and, you know, thinking about her schooling. Um, but then um, the grant gave me an opportunity to research UDL. And I'm actually kind of the lead in this grant on the UDL front. A lot of people know about UDL, but I'm the one that's kind of like helping people along and, and providing the, the guidance for it. And so I've been trying to integrate more universal design for learning strategies into the first year writing program um, and, and teaching teachers about that across the board as well. And so, um, so those are, are some of the things, some of my commitments as far as that goes. Um, you co-coordinate the first year writing program at Fresno State, and the program uses a directed self-placement model. I was hoping you could spend some time talking about directed self-placement and the rationale behind this model and its success at Fresno State. You know, we were like the second CSU to start using directed self-placement. And now um, I would say more than half are using directed self-placement or wanting to move in that direction. And probably um, I would say two thirds to three quarters have a stretch course, um, which is also part of our directed self-placement. Um, and it's partly because of our leadership and also San Francisco State had a stretch course. Sacramento got on board really quickly. And so those are th some of the three largest and most diverse institutions in the CSUs. Because the very first one was Channel Islands and it's kind of a small campus and um, so when we started using it, then people were like, oh, you know, and San Jose is really strong with that now. And so um, anyways, yes, you're absolutely right. Like directed self-placement, the idea is like, hey, you're coming to college. And so you need to make a decision about what your learning is going to look like based on this idea of what they call self-efficacy, which roughly translates to your confidence level. Because what they find is that the, your, um, your self-efficacy actually is a better indicator of whether or not you'll succeed in a class um, rather than other kinds of things like your writing ability during a time test or your grades in a classroom or, you know, those kinds of things. And so, you know, one of the things that I'm trying to work on is how to support our uh, most, you know, our most vulnerable language learners, um, because I think a majority of our students can really be helped in the in the stretch course. Um, and so, uh, and not just about language, but also, you know, some folks are just not very, you know, they don't like English very much. So our two, our core courses are still the stretch 5A and 5B and the English 10. And then along with that, students can take the writing center um, for one semester or two semesters, depending on how much support they need. So there's a survey that we send out to them and they fill out the survey and the survey asks them things like, in your last writing experience, did you write five different papers of, you know, five pages or more each? You know, are you used to reading um, about 20 pages of writing, of reading per week and taking notes? And, you know, have, do you have any experience with, um, you know, peer review? And do you have strategies for reading? You know, so we have this whole list of questions. And, um, and then in the end, and so the, the, the survey is really based on should you go into 5A and 5B or should you go into English 10? Um, and then we do have um, some very limited sections in the linguistics um, program for those vulnerable language learners, um, but we're trying to make something that's maybe a little bit more integrated. But anyway, so so from there, then they can sign up for the writing center, but they they have to do that on their own, you know. And of course, you know, we 
take them to the writing center usually on the first day, but, um, or during the first week, you know, the way that our writing center is set up is that we have, um, as you know, um, you know, semester long, um, group, small group tutorials that students sign up for, they sign up for, um, a one unit, uh, credit. And it, ultimately what it does is it gives them some peer mentoring, you know, I mean, they're focusing on writing and, and they bring their assignments and, you know, they're working with a peer who is an upper division um, student in the university or a graduate student. And so, and it's small groups, it's three students to one tutor. So um, it does provide that kind of peer mentorship that I think um, is really valuable. The students um, have lots of really great things to say about it. Um, when we look at the numbers, um, the students who go through the writing center are more successful um, than the, as, you know, than peers that don't coming in at similar situations. And so, um, and it's highly tied to the first year writing program. You've taught at Fresno State for 15 years. Is there anything that sticks out to you about teaching there? Or maybe what has surprised you the most about teaching at an Hispanic serving institution? I think one of the things that has surprised me and one of the things that I continue to talk to my junior colleagues about is that there is a lot of opportunity for innovation at the California State Universities. I mean, um, you know, we are a teaching institution. We're not a research one. And so you kind of think like, well, it's the research one universities that really have the opportunities for innovation because people have course releases, you know, they're expected to publish. Um, there are more resources often because there are more opportunities for grants or, or different kinds of fellowships and those kinds of things. Um, and, um, but in fact, we have a lot of administrators on campus who are open to our ideas, who will listen to us, who want to innovate, who want what's best for our students and will listen to arguments as far as that goes and um, are, you know, really grateful for our, uh, our work in that regard. And so um, it doesn't always happen right away. In fact, sometimes it takes a long time for it to happen. <laughs> but, but, you know, if we continue to persist, I mean, one of the things that um, we have been working on for uh, probably since I since I came in 15 years ago is is trying to create a writing across the curriculum program. You know our model for uh, the CSU has a uh, graduate writing assessment requirement. They call it the GWAR requirement, and it means that when you graduate, either with a bachelor's degree or a master's degree, that you have to demonstrate proficiency in writing. And the way that we do that and the way that many CSUs have done it is through a deficit model, which is you take a test and if you don't pass it, then you can take the test again. And if you don't pass it, then you have to take a course. Um, and so that's really focused. That's really saying, hey, we got to remediate you, you know, and um, so you know, we are slowly trying to move into a writing in the disciplines approach where um, students are learning about their literacy practices in different disciplines. But, you know, um, professors and often it's lecturers who teach those courses need to have guidance and best practices in writing instruction. And so, and particularly language instruction too, because um, otherwise it comes off as this kind of like, you know, again, continuing, it's, in some ways, it's easy to teach writing from a deficit model because that is the dominant narrative um, about the teaching of writing in our sort of 
you know, common, um, you know, in public schools, you know, you got the Jane Schaefer model, the step up to writing. And so a lot of people, you know, or, or there's no teaching of writing and it's just a signing of writing. And so we've had a couple of writing across the curriculum coordinators. They were temporary, um, but we have somebody coming in this year who is, um, who is permanent. You know, again, we're trying to provide students with the resources that they need for their success. And I, I think part of, you know, one thing I wanted to kind of follow up on with the last question about the model of our directed self-placement and some of the political stuff that's going on in California in relationship to higher education, which I think we really need to be paying attention to, which is, I think it's good to provide support for students as far as, you know, giving them classes and, and resources and those kinds of things. But I think sometimes we might get a little paternalistic and think, oh, you got to take a lot of classes in order for you to, you know, be up to par or whatever. And that's just as dangerous and damaging to students as well. And so I think we really need to be mindful about how we support students and what kind of requirements we put on them. And I mean, this is really coming out of UDL too, because, you know, one of the things that UDL says is like, okay, well, you know, students with disabilities, they get accommodations, right? That's part of the um, law, the state, you know, the ADA law, right? Is that, you know, people with disabilities um, deserve accommodations in order to um, uh, get to the same level as people who don't need those accommodations. But what the UDL folks have found is that, in fact, some of the uh, modifications or the approaches that, that universal design for learning takes actually works for a lot of different people, including people who are second language learners, including high performing. And, um, and their, their research, um, uh, while not really integrated well with the culturally sustaining piece, really does focus on this idea that you know, all learners that come into the classroom are diverse. And so we need to be aware of those diversities and, and you know, like uh, note-taking is a common accommodation. You know, having, having like class group notes um, that pe different people are responsible for is maybe one way where we can kind of spread the wealth, you know, because maybe one person needs to have a note-taker, but those notes might be useful for other students in the class too, even if only as a model of how to note take. I mean, I was the first person to go to college in my in my family, and I did not have any of those student practices. And I don't know how I got to where I'm at, <laughs> except for maybe just hard work. But um, but you know, if I would have had some of those uh, strategies, you know, I think maybe things would have been a lot easier. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is that. Um, we really, you know, we can't just say, oh, we need to load them up with more classes and, you know, those kinds of things. But we need to really have those targeted interventions that are not just good for our most vulnerable students, but can also be good for all students. Thanks, Jenny. And thank you, pedagogue listeners and followers. Until next time.